the Torah is not a photograph, it's a painting. And so there really is no way to know in any one given story of the Torah how much is core that's historical and how much is embellishment. All the figures, all the basic events happen as, uh, as, as, as told. And then here and there, there can be an embellishment, just like a painting. You know, no one ever looks at a painting and says, but trees don't look that way. Yeah, but you know, you know, there's reasons that we all ooh and ah to Rembrandt, okay? More than we do at, at photographs. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Many religious Jews are troubled by the findings of modern academic studies of the Bible. And few issues can be as fraught with emotion and angst as the question of whether Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, actually happened. After all, the reality of that event is the backbone of so much of Jewish belief. Our entire relationship with God is largely predicated upon it. So when Bible professors question or doubt whether it happened at all, or whether it happened precisely in the way that the Torah describes, the believing Jew may find himself troubled. Rabbi Joshua Berman, professor of Tanakh at Bar-Ilan University, who has been a guest on this podcast before, doesn't shy away from these issues. He confronts them head-on. What's especially fascinating is that his approach is far from apologetics. He explains that in defending the Torah, we often have it backwards— that instead of seeing other ancient documents and artifacts as echoing the Torah, we should expect the Torah to echo ancient documents and artifacts. What I found especially interesting about this is that in so doing, not only does Rabbi Berman explain why the Torah is believable despite the findings of archaeology, but he also uses these discoveries as evidence that the story is historical. Moreover, some of his ideas can shed new light in fascinating ways on what the Torah is trying to tell us. We'll get to this really interesting discussion in just a minute. First, please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish Coffeehouse team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com, that's jchpodcast.com, to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman is professor of Tanakh at Bar-Ilan University. A graduate of Princeton University and of Yeshivat Haaretzion, Rabbi Berman is the author of two academic books on the five books of the Torah. Created Equal, How the Bible Broke with Ancient Political Thought, which was a National Jewish Book Award finalist in scholarship, and Inconsistency in the Torah, Ancient Literary Convention and the Limits of Source Criticism. 
His articles on biblical theology and contemporary society have appeared in the pages of Mosaic Magazine and the Wall Street Journal. Rabbi Dr. Berman served as a member of the International Advisory Board for the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. His latest book is Anima Amin, Biblical Criticism, Historical Accuracy, and the 13 Principles of Faith. As you'll hear, we did have some technical difficulties at times, but they're relatively minor, and this interview is so interesting that it's completely worth it. Rabbi Joshua Berman, thank you very much for joining me once again on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Last time you were on, it was a fantastic episode, and I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation. You were on the show about six months ago, and I had you then intentionally at the beginning of Kriyat Torah around Parsha Breshi to discuss challenges to biblical faith that arise from academic approaches to the Bible. And one of the most acute examples of that kind of challenge is the question of the historicity of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the Exodus. Let's begin there, and I want to read a passage from your fantastic book. The book is called Anima Amin, Biblical Criticism, Historical Truth, and the 13 Principles of Faith. And in chapter 3, you open the chapter by saying, Perhaps no issue raised in this book has garnered as much interest and generated as much angst as the question of the historicity of the Torah's account of the Exodus. Excising the Exodus from Judaism would seem to undercut Judaism itself. After all, the biblical rationale for Israel's obligation to God is premised not on his identity as creator or on his supreme moral authority, but on the fact that the Israelite slaves in Egypt cried out to him from their bondage and he saved them. This is the sole driving force behind the opening line of the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God, who took you out of Egypt, the house of bondage. Were there no exodus, it would seem, nearly all of Judaism's sacred texts over the centuries would have perpetuated a great lie. In response to the question posed by the child at the Seder meal, how was this night different from all other nights? A father would be obliged to reply, really, my child, there is no difference. And indeed, at many a contemporary Seder table, where questions about the historicity of the Exodus arise, a new figure has emerged. Next to the son, who knows not how to ask, sits the father who knows not how to answer. Powerful words and a real problem for a lot of people. Why do people question the story as it's told in Sefer Shemot? Right. So uh, the reason that there are many scholars who say that there's uh, uh, no basis to the story is not because they're anti-Semitic. It's not even because they're, they're atheist. It's because when they look in the sources of, of ancient Egypt, of which we have many, uh, there's no mention of Israelites, no mention of Hebrews, no mention of slaves upping and outing, certainly no mention of a Moses, an Aaron, plagues. So the conclusion is simply, if it isn't written, then it just didn't happen. That's a first reasonable conclusion that one might come to. That's where it starts. Now, obviously, Rabbi Berman, you feel differently. So can you explain how you approach this issue of Yitzhak Mitzrayim and its historical reality? I know we'll go through cer certain details, but overall, what's your overall approach to this question? Okay. It, it starts with understanding the nature of the sources. So let's try to just kind of parry the question first, why maybe the question isn't, or the, 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 the conclusion isn't as strong as some might think it is based on what I said uh, just a minute ago. And then I want to move on to why I think that there's really very solid reason to believe in the historicity of an Exodus event. We don't expect to find bad news in ancient Egyptian sources. The way we need to think about uh, the way in which they wrote about the past is that these are reports to the gods. And in just the same way as if you were filling a position in your office and you had a big pile of resumes and you went through them and you said, wow, what an incredibly talented group. Not a single one of them ever got fired. Look, I went through their resumes and none of them wrote that they got fired. So I guess none of them got fired. This is kind of how, how Egyptians write about the past. There's just no bad news. 
Uh, furthermore, anything that might have been written about Hebrews, Aaron, Moses, slaves that would have been in, in Eretz Goshen, which is in the northeastern part of what they call the Nile Delta, kind of near the Suez Canal in, in, in these times, uh, is now submerged underwater or has been built, rebuilt and rebuilt and rebuilt over the centuries such that very li- there's, not, there's nothing left. There's nothing left that's written. Um, and so to say that we haven't found any mention by itself is not, is not necessarily conclusive. But I think that what's more significant here is that I think that scholars have uh, taken the wrong angle on this. What they've done effectively is to say, okay, let's look in our Torah. Now let's look in our Egyptian sources and see if we see any hint of what it says in the Torah, in the Egyptian sources, and they don't come up with anything. But I and uh, my, my colleagues who are like-minded say what we need to do is look at the opposite. You start by looking in your Egyptian sources and then looking in the Torah and see what does the Torah know about ancient Egypt? And uh, how did it know that? And when did it know that? And then we begin to get a very different picture because what we see is that the Torah in broad fashion engages in what we call cultural appropriation of stealing the thunder of the pharaohs, of taking the royal propaganda and weaving it in within the story of the Exodus. I'll give one simple example, and this is a little morsel that all of us can take to our Seder table. We say in the Haggadah, something that's taken from Chomish, that a Kodesh Baruch Hu took us out of Egypt, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Anyone who's sat at a Seder table has heard this phrase many, many times. Now, it turns out that even though one might have thought that at many points in the Tanakh, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu does a miracle, that the, the text might say, oh, and there was God doing his Yad Chazakah and Zeruah Netuyah, it's a phrase that we almost never see anywhere else other than with reference to the Exodus. Everywhere else, we just have Yad Hashem, the hand of God, but not this phrase Yad Chazakah or Zeruah Netuyah, mighty hand or outstretched arm. Now, when we look from the Torah, Back to our Egyptian sources, what we find is that during the period of Shibud Mitzrayim, the enslavement in Egypt, which more or less seems to parallel uh, the, the greatest zenith of Egyptian history, it's called the, the New Kingdom of Egypt, from roughly 1500 to 1200 BCE, what we see is that routinely those pharaohs, everything they do is, is trumpeted as them having done, done that with their mighty hand or outstretched arm. The Pharaoh, he defeated the Libyans with his mighty hand. The Pharaoh, he bagged 120 elephants with his outstretched arm. The Pharaoh one day was walking along and he picked up a diamond with his mighty hand and on and on. And sometimes they're just called the mighty hand or the outstretched arm. And so what the Torah is doing here is cultural appropriation. It's stealing the thunder of the Pharaohs. It's out Pharaohing the Pharaoh. It's saying, we are going to extol the Almighty by showing how in the defeat of Egypt, he is even greater than the pharaohs themselves, and we're going to use their propaganda to show just how lowly they are and how mighty he is. That's one small example. There are many phrases that are like that, and then it turns out that this is done in huge fashion. The story of the Exodus itself, uh, Exodus chapters 14 and 15, the story of Kriyat Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, and Shirat Hayam, the Song of Moses, What we can see is that systematically the Torah is appropriating and reworking a great inscription by Ramses II that describes his greatest achievement, which was uh, something called the Battle of Kadesh, not Kadesh Barnea, that's mentioned in Chomish and the Negev, a Kadesh somewhere else up north in in, uh, the Syrian 
Lebanese border, a huge battle, his major uh, achievement uh, in 1274 BCE against the Hittite Empire. And he comes back to Egypt and he plasters all of Egypt with inscriptions about this great event. Uh, uh, it's the most publicized event in all of ancient history. That means, you know, if you think of like the Arch of Titus, there's one Arch of Titus. But there are that we know of 10 different places across Egypt where Ramses put up inscriptions and even base reliefs, pictures of these things. 10 that survived. And that survived. That's right. It's clearly much more. We don't even have his capital. His capital is underwater today. But what we see is that the Torah seems to be mimicking or making even fun or showing how Kriyat Yamsuf is similar but better in, in many, many ways. In other words, what we see here, my claim is, is that uh, we can find Egyptian sources in the Chumash. Now, what's important for me to just add, and with this, I'll, I'll, I'll conclude the, this lengthy answer to your question, Scott. Um, whenever, this is just methodologically, whenever we see something in the Torah that looks something somewhat similar to some other ancient writing, could be the Code of Hammurabi, and could be many other, many other texts, um, there's always the question of which influenced which, and, and when did that influence happen? The very fact that, they, that you have similarities between them doesn't fully answer that question. So here I will say that we know that within Egypt itself, this these what's called the Kaddish inscriptions of Ramses II had no currency after Ramses' own lifetime. It's not as though this became a canonical text that Egyptians passed on generation after generation, copied It wasn't over. like the Haggadah. Right, that's right, that's right. The only thing about the Exodus that, that lasted was our side of the story, not the Egyptian side of the story, okay? Um, so it was never copied, never mimicked, never emulated, certainly within Egypt. And no monumental inscription has ever been found outside of Egypt that was originally written in hieroglyphs. So that leads one to the conclusion that if the Torah seems to have a very intimate familiarity with these inscriptions, that it must be that there were Israelites in Egypt at that time who were familiar with it, and something happened to them that they perceived as having been a liberation from Ramses that was brought about by the Rabbanu Shalom. It's very interesting. This Is this what you call the comparative method? It seems that it's almost the reverse of the way most people would intuitively think would be the method of defending the Torah. You'd say, we influence them. You're saying, no, they influenced the Torah, but in a way that demonstrates that the Torah is telling the truth. So let me, let me just uh, uh, say two, more, two things about, about that comparative method. I know sometimes when I share this with uh, people who come from a traditional orientation, they're like, okay, okay, well, let's say that these, these parallels are very strong. H how do you know that we took it from them? Maybe the Egyptians copied from us, huh? huh? And that sounds, you know, frumer. So what sounds I say frumer, here is, right. yeah, what I, what I say is this, what I say is this, whenever, you know, we're speaking or writing, to a group, and we invoke, we, we kind of refer to some work that's out there. We only do so if our audience gets what we're doing, okay? I love doing this when I'm in front of a, of a group of Americans and Brits together, and I say, the bomb's bursting in air, and it's great. I look out in the audience, and all the Americans are smiling, <laughs> and all the Brits are like, huh? What'd you just say? Who? Where? Bomb's bursting in air. They're like, you don't get it. Right. They don't get it because you have to be American to understand what that phrase means, that it's from the American national anthem. So if I were giving a sheer to a bunch of Brits and I referred to the bombs bursting in air, it would fall on flat. It would fall flat. It wouldn't work. You only invoke uh, a reference to some work if you know that your audience is going to get it. Now, how many Egyptians were at Kriyat Yamsuf who survived? 
I, I don't know, not many. So if one of them ran back to Egypt and said, okay, let's write this great victory depiction of Ramses, and we're going to do it based on what the Jews said in Hebrew, which we understood because we're Egyptians, right? So we know Hebrew, right? All right, leave that problem aside. Nobody in Egypt would get it, okay? The other way around, however, if we were, if we were truly slaves in Egypt, and we know that slaves were reading these, the, the, these inscriptions, we have evidence of that, well, then it makes sense. This was the indoctrination that B'nai Israel were getting, as everybody was in Egypt, and so it is we that took from them. And I'll just say, if, if comparative method doesn't sound so from, do you know who the father of comparative method is? It's that great biblical scholar, Maimonides. It's the Rambam. The Rambam is the first figure in history, in the Morn of Buchim, in the third chilek, in the, in, in, in the Guide to the Perplexed, in its third, its third part, where Maimonides, the Rambam, engages in what we call the search for Tamea mitzvot, the reasons for the mitzvot. And in many instances, especially things having to do with the tabernacle and with the, with the sacrifices, he will say, you know, I didn't understand really why the Torah gave us this particular way to do this mitzvah or that mitzvah. And he will say, but what I did is I went and looked and learned about ancient Near Eastern cultic practices. And I saw similarities. And I see that often what the Torah is doing is that it is adopting, but adapting. It is taking what B'nai Yisrael might have been familiar with, but tweaking it in a certain way to make it less pagan, less physical, more monotheistic, etc. In fact, the Rambam says at the end of the Mornabuchim, he says, oh, halavai, that I would have had more books about the ancient world, I would have understood the Torah better. And I can only say that Baruch Hashem, in our time, we have access to far more works than the Rambam did, and maybe therefore can begin to get some insights that the Kodesh Baruch was only allowing us now in this age to arrive at. I asked you this in the last episode, but I'm going to ask it again because I think it's an important question. That does lead to the question of, is the Torah dated therefore? Meaning the Torah seems to be an eternal document. It's supposed to speak to all people at all times. Of course, that's balanced with the Torah being written in the language of man. But to say it was written in the language of man in a specific time and place and using the example of the bombs bursting in air, Let's say there's a time in the distant future where that's no longer the United States National Anthem, and someone says that reference no longer means anything, but the Torah is supposed to be something which we can look at today, and it's giving references to Ramses and to those inscriptions in the Battle of Kadesh, which mean nothing to us. Why would God do that in the Torah? I, I realize that's a big question to ask somebody, but you are a rabbi. Why is it that God would write in the Torah a reference to an inscription which probably several hundred years later would be dated? Right. So, so just to be clear, this is a question you're posing to Berman, but you really, you could pose it to Maimonides just the same, because if he is the one who started with this. And, uh, you know, when he says, oh, this part of the Avoda, that part of the Avoda, you should know what the, what the, what the pagans were doing. And this is, you know, you say the same thing, you know, until the Rambam came along, no one knew this either within, you know, within the great sages of Israel either. Okay. I, I would say, I would say as follows. The fact of the matter is, is that there are many, many passages in the Torah uh, where in different places, Chazal, different members, different parshanim will say, oh, well, this apparently is, is explained based on what was done in ancient times. Uh, that one can point to almost any parshan, any, any classical medieval uh, uh, exegete, and at one point or another, this is the type of tact that they will take. Now, the way I understand it is, is, is the following, is that uh, there is no way, there is no, I would say, divine Esperanto. There is no language that the Ribbono Shalom can speak that will be 
fully and equally understandable to all people of all ages. That is not because of a limitation on the part of the Rebona Shalom, but because of a limitation of mankind. We are who we are. We live where we are. We're all born in a certain time and a certain place. Now, the Torah has, as we say, Shivim Panim, 70 aspects or facets to it. And I assume from that that there are certain lessons in the Torah that are that are, are certain certain way, modes of expression that were more understandable to the first uh, generation of uh, those that, that 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 left in the Exodus uh, than they are to, uh, accessible to later generations, unless you happen to have the Kaddish inscriptions of Ramses II et al et al et al. Just like I think that there are certain aspects of of Sod and of Kabbalah that you know were, were hidden from view for a very long time or known by very few people and have been brought out you know whether by the Balea Kabbalah or by by Hasidus uh, and this is the nature of Torah the, the Torah's eternity is not that every single letter every single word is infinitely understandable at all times all places all people it has eternal truths that come out in different ways in different times and in different places even the Gemara I think Shabbos says you know was not given it at Adam Arishon, it was not given to Avram Avinu, it had to wait for, uh, for Moshe Rabinu to come along. This implies that it was meant to be communicated, uh, at least on, on some level, one of its one of its shivim panim, one of its 70 faces, uh, to the generation of the Exodus. That's very interesting. One thing you said, almost as an aside, I find also very interesting when you mentioned that the new kingdom in Egypt from 1500 to 1200 BCE, I think that's the date you said, was the zenith of its power could also just add some additional power to the fact that coming out of the most powerful kingdom at its zenith itself also demonstrates something that, you know, right now Egypt is just another country. It wasn't just that we were slaves in some random country. We were slaves to an empire at its height. Right. You know, I can't claim to know the Rabban Shalom's designs, but, you know, if you wanted to make a splash, that's when you would do it and that's where you would do it. Right. I'll just say, you know, in terms of the, the accuracy of the Torah, this just blows me away all the time. You know, when we read through Chumash, Scott, it's very clear. There's one empire on the face of the earth, and that's Egypt. Okay? But very quickly, think about, think about Sefer Yoshua, Sefer Shoftim, which discuss many, many enemies. And I don't think Mitzrayim is mentioned even once in either of those Sfarim. And it's not an accident, because we know that right after 1200, or right after what I'm saying is the time of, of Yitziat Mitzrayim, more or less, uh, we know archaeologically that Egypt went in a deep, a deep freefall and lost its grandeur. And, and it's pitch perfect when we see that Yoshua and Shoftim, books of Joshua and Judges, are entirely unconcerned about what just a few chapters ago, as it were, in the, in the canon of the Bible, was the biggest empire around because it just it fell apart. That's interesting. When you speak about the accuracy of the Torah, one question, which I'm going back to something you said earlier about the lack of historical evidence, the lack of any mention. One thing that's very surprising, however, and you do discuss this in your book, are the numbers of Jews who came out. It's one thing to say that Egyptian records don't mention the Hebrew slaves. But the Torah says that 600,000 people left, and that only refers to males between certain ages. We're really talking about a couple million people, as you point out, basically the population of Houston. That is a lot of people. To say that there's no record of such a huge group, the entire city of Houston, as it's currently constituted, leaving Egypt, that seems to push things a little bit far. So how do you explain that? Okay, so as I said before, you know, the Egyptians didn't report bad news of any sort. That's number one. What is archaeology? It's settlement. You know, it's stones. It's stone, stone structures, not tents. You know, so you wouldn't. In fact, we know from other writings of other people 
that they moved across large areas. And when we look, can't find, you can't find anything. As far as that number of 600,000, starts with understanding how, I would say, fungible uh, numbers are in the Tanakh generally. Um, uh, that numbers in Dibra Yamim are, are symbolic uh, and markers of meaning. And even the Nitzvah says this about the Shivim Nefesh, the 70 souls, the 70 descendants of Jacob who went down to Egypt, which the Torah, and you know, it seems to be, it seems to be as clear as day that it must be 70, because in, in Breshit Memvav, Genesis 46, it says there were 70, and it gives the roll call of the 70 names. It says who they were. And it says who they were, right. The Nitziv, no less, says there were not 70. There were a lot more than 70. He says this because in the, in the verses that lead up to that roll call, it says, and here are the descendants of, ya- of, of Yaakov, including his sons and his daughters and his daughters-in-law, grandsons and granddaughters. And then when you look at the list, you see that there are 67 males and two females. I mean, those girls had really great shidduch possibilities. You know? <laughs> but, I mean, it just doesn't sound like, and, and so it can't be. It just can't be. This is what he says. And so he begins to look for some symbolism. And in, in, in Anima, I mean, I, I gave some other symbolism. But I think the point here is that, you know, we, are, just by virtue of the time and age that we live in, are so accustomed to seeing numbers as statistical, uh, quantitative facts. And that's what, when you see a number, that's what you think. Um, but I don't think that that's necessarily the way, certainly the el- other cultures in the ancient Near East didn't view numbers this way. And I think that uh, uh, certainly in Divrayami numbers don't function this way. And on record, you have the Nitzivu saying that even the 70 in Chumash uh, doesn't work this way. And then how do they do- function? Uh, so what do, the, what do these numbers mean? Um, let me address what I th- the, the, the 600,000 might mean, okay? Uh, because there's just so many problems with it. You know, I mean, when you think about the number of how many priests were there in the time of, 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 of the Dora Midbar and the generation of the, of the wilderness. Right? There's Aaron's four sons. Maybe they had a few kids each. So maybe we have two dozen Kohanim priests for, for two million people to offer all of those korbanot. You know, or the Torah says that uh, when they crossed the Kriyat Yamsuf, they arrived at a place called Elima. And wow, there were, there were 70 date trees, date palm trees there. Think about that. That would mean 30,000 people per date country. I mean, it just doesn't seem, you know, the number of firstborn that would have to be, if you really have two or three million people, then that would mean that the number of, uh, based on the 22,000 firstborns that, that we have that replace, that the Levium replace, every woman had about 60 babies. But I throw out, you know, I don't have a proof for this, is the following. We can take it as a given that uh, in the Torah, to have a larger number of descendants is a sign of bracha, and a smaller number of descendants is less bracha. Let's put it that way. Okay. Now, there's a very interesting correspondence between the number of people in the different shvatim, the sizes of the different shvatim, according to Bamidbar Chafav, and the blessings given by Yaakov Avinu at the end of Sefer Breshit. When you look in the, at the brachot that Yaakov Avinu gives, what you see is that uh, there are two super brachot. Yehuda gets a super bracha, big long bracha, and Yosef gets a big long bracha. At the bottom of the list, you have Reuven, Shimon, and Levi, who get brachas that you and I would not want to get. Basically. They're not really brachas. So the last three, the last three brachot given to Reuven, Shimon, and Levi, they're not brach, they're not brachot at all. They're 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 klalot. They're like basically curses. Now, what we see when we turn to uh, Bamidbar Chafav is that you have Yehuda's the largest Shevet, and you have Menashe and Ephraim, they also make up a, huge, a very large Shevet. At the bottom of the scale, you have 
uh, Shimon and Levi, they are the smallest of the Shvatim, and Ruvain is twice the size of the smallest Shevet. And so what you see is that the numbers of the Shvatim in Numbers 26 correspond to the brachot that were given by Yaakov Avinu in Breshit Memchet. That might be a way of finding the numbers, not to be statistical realities, but rather the bearers of meaning, that the brachot of Yaakov were in fact fulfilled. And Reuven would be double Shimon because he was the Bechor. Oh, because he he's the Bechor. Bechor gets Pishnaim. That's right. Double. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's interesting. But at the same time, why have numbers at all if it's not going to say a statistical reality? Or is it more a specific message oh, that you can I, derive I would say just it? the opposite. Why have numbers if all they are a statistical reality? That is to say, do we really is it, do we really have to know? Do we really care? And if it was a, a little more or a little less, would it make any difference? What we're looking is what the Torah is trying to teach us. And so I think that searching out the meanings of the numbers is 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 really significant. This brings us back to the original question, which I cited in your book, when a father tells his son, this is what happened, or the son asks, what happened in Egypt? And the father says, I have no idea what actually happened. So according to your approach, while the Torah is telling the truth, we still don't know exactly what happened. Is that really true? Because we don't know what is meant literally, what is history, what is figurative, what is supposed to teach a lesson. So how does a father tell his son, this is what happened when we left Egypt? Because we still don't know. Right. So I I would invoke here Rav Kook. There's a great line in Rav Kook, which I think is, is real medicine for all of us. Rav Kook says about this very question of, well, wait a minute, is, are the things in the Tanakh, including in the Torah, are they literal and, and 100% factual? And if not, uh-oh, are we on a slippery slope? And, and, and how will we know? And, and why, why would the Torah do this? Why doesn't the Torah just tell us truth? That is to say fact. And what Rav Kook says is the following. He says, all stories in the Tanakh and in the Torah are intended to leave or to create an imprint on the soul of the hearer or the learner. Of Cook says, when the Torah believes that giving over just the facts themselves will produce that imprint on the soul, then the Torah will give just the facts. But when the Torah feels that just giving the facts can be dry, like a documentary can be dry, and the lessons will only be taught if it's more like an embellished story, then the Torah will have no qualms about using an embellishment to make the core of the story the vehicle to, to, to transmit the lesson that we need to learn. Or as someone put it once in a way that I think is really, really accurate, the Torah is not a photograph, it's a painting. Because in the, what the Torah is doing is teach the lesson. And so there really is no way to know in any one given story of the Torah how much is core that's historical and how much is embellishment. I think that the whole cogency of the Torah falls apart if you say that it's myth, because the Torah is pretty on saying, look, what is this about that we call the Tanakh? This tells you that when you, Am Yisrael, when you do what's right historically, this book will teach you that you get that you get rewarded. And this book also teaches you that when you do what's wrong, then you get punished. Now, if this book is supposed to teach you based on what happened, that all falls apart if it didn't happen. So it has no, it has no coherence unless there is a core, all the figures, all the basic events happen as, uh, as, as, as told. And then here and there, there can be an embellishment, just like a painting. You know, no one ever looks at a painting and says, but trees don't look that way. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you know, there's reasons that we all ooh and ah to Rembrandt, okay? More than we do at, at photographs. That's a beautiful mashal. I like that. 
Do you think, Rabbi Berman, that the ideas you're talking about now should be taught to our children at the Seder? Is this something that's insider baseball, that only if you're bothered by it in the first place, you should really discuss the fact that, well, the numbers aren't necessarily literal, factual calculations, they're talking about something else, and so on and so forth? Or is this, no, this is really for everybody. Everybody should know what's really going on over here. What's your approach? Yeah, I don't know if at the Seder table necessarily, because this is, you know, the type of thing that I think is a little bit a little bit uh, uh, engaged and takes a little bit of back and forth. As we all know, we come to the Seder table with many different Torah, and then it's very hard to even finish one thought, you know, there's <laughs> all these people and little kids and, and, you know, the one who wants to get on with it already. So I don't know if the Seder table, Scott, is the place, but I do believe, I really do believe that, that somewhere, somewhere in high school, this needs to be given over. Because otherwise... What people are left with is the, as religious doctrine, every single thing that happens in the Torah is exactly fully factual. And if you say otherwise, then you are, you know, that's, that's, you, you are, that, that's blasphemy. You are an apostate. And then that means that at the moment that any little thing anywhere in the Tanakh, someone is able to question, poof, the whole thing, the whole thing bursts. And so it's really important. I think early on in high school for kids to be exposed to this rough cook. I do. And I think that when you say the Torah is telling us the, the, our past uh, as a series of paintings rather than a series of photographs, I think it's a way to do it. And the truth is, is that this is not apologetics. This is the way all ancient writers wrote. It's only in our age that we, that we insist that everything must be factual in order to have any value. And I often emphasize in dealing with similar questions, it's not a question of truth, it's a question of history, which are not necessarily the same thing. Something can be true even if it's not teaching history. Rabbi Berman, you recently went on a trip to Egypt. I want to ask you a little bit about that. That's obviously relevant to our talk today. So can you just tell us, first of all, how that happened? It's not that common that a rabbi in these days and times goes to Egypt with a group. What happened? What was the story there? Wow. So, you know, I, as, as I mentioned, Scott, I've been, I've been um, uh, studying these inscriptions, these Kaddish inscriptions, which I think have amazing bearing on the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim for a long time and on, and on many facets about the, uh, concerning the, 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 the tabernacle. And I've, I've been dying to go, really dying to go. But I wanted to go, not just, you know, on a tour with a tour group and look at pyramids. I wanted to go with a mumcha. I wanted to go with the top guy in the world who studies Egyptology in the Bible. And that is my Egyptology Rebbe, Professor James Hoffmeyer of Trinity International University Divinity School. And he is a very devout man and a huge Ohev Yisrael. So he was leading a group of 2020 at the height, the height of Corona, when no planes were leaving Israel. And miraculously, Ben Gurion Airport, like, like walls of, of, of water, opened and just the days that I needed to. And I got out and I was able to go on this tour of Egypt. I was kind of scared. You know, good Jewish boys don't walk around in Egypt with their kippah on, but I don't do the hat thing. But I figured, you know, I have 15 Christian bodyguards. I'll be in good shape. You know, the other, the other tourists that were on the group. You were the only Jew there? I was surprised. I was the only Jew there. Yes, yes. I brought my kosher food and I was the only Jew there. I received a very warm welcome from the Egyptians I, I had contact with. And I was just totally blown away by all the things that you see there and the connections that Professor Hoffmeyer was making between things in, in, on the walls. There's tons on the walls, drawings and illustrations and things in the Torah. And the last day we were sitting, having a cup of coffee, overlooking the Nile, Luxor. And I, I thought to myself, you know, one day when a Shiach comes, it'd be really cool to bring from Jews to Egypt. 
and to learn this stuff. Every, every Jew should be exposed to this. This is like amazing stuff. And an hour later, I thought to myself, well, maybe we don't need to wait for Mashiach. <laughs> and so I, I came back and started to peddle the idea. This was at the height of Corona. But in the end, there was, there was huge interest, huge. Uh, the thing sold out. I actually did a second trip uh, that month also. Uh, and there are more coming up. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's really to walk back into time. It, it's different. Visiting Egypt is different than archaeological, archaeological sites anywhere else in the world. Why is that? Why? You know, you can go to Rome or Greece, obviously, by us here in Eretz Israel. And what you see is stones. Uh, what you see is stones. You might even see a full stone structure. Not so much here. Uh, but that's what you see, you know, in Rome or Greece. In Egypt, there is tons that's written and drawn on the walls. And it's it's very accessible and 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 in, and, and fully preserved, totally, because it's an arid environment and because a lot of this stuff was covered with, with sand for a long time. And so you can look at, at, at pictures that are extremely vivid and that teach you about all aspects of daily life that then shed a zillion little insights on things in the, in the Chomish. And I would say above all, you get a sense. I mean, it is super imposing. You know, these massive colossal statues uh, and buildings everywhere. I mean, you really do feel this big, just puny, like really, really puny. And you can understand, you know, just how imposing it must have been to be a slave to such, you know, to such potentates. Uh, and what, how difficult it is to convince human beings that these guys aren't the real thing, the real power. You can't see him. You can't hear him, but he's up there. That's, that's quite a challenge. And did you find the trip was very much in line with what you had already studied about Egypt and what you had already learned about Egypt in terms sure, of Sure, and more and more. And every time I go, you discover more and more that it explains different passages in Chumash, like really amazing stuff. Can, can I just fantastic. tell you one, one example? I'll give you one Please. example. Okay, all right. In, in hieroglyphs, when you write a sentence in hieroglyphs, they have a certain rule, a strange rule. The rule is that if the sentence has the name of a god, of which there are many, then no matter what the sentence is saying, you must put the name of the god as the first word of the sentence. Okay? So just for example, Lahavdil, if you have a pasuk, you know, Vayomer Avram El Hayalokim, okay? Then if you were writing on hieroglyphs, you would have to have Elokim, Vayomer Avraham El Ha. And, you know, it's written in a way you can't make sense of. It's up to the reader to then go and figure it out. The idea of here, of course, is that if the name of a God is in a sentence, of course he must be the first word. How could God not be the first word in a sentence? And so you scramble the whole sentence until it makes no sense. Okay? I thought I looked at that and I thought, wow, you know, I like that. I like putting God first. That, that resonates with me. Wait a minute, Berman, you have something in common with these Ovde Avodazara, <laughs> with these ultimate pagans? And then someone showed me that in, that in Masechet Shabbos, Samach Gimel, Amud Bet, it says that the tzitz, the diadem that the Kohen Gadol wore, that on it, it said Kodesh Lashem, dedicated or, or holy to God. But it didn't say Kodesh Lashem. It said Hashem in the top line. And in the bottom line, it said Kodesh Lashem. That is the same thing. That is the same thing. It's a way of putting God first. That's interesting. I just thought that's that was fascinating. Totally blow away. It's just blow away. 
Yeah. And there's also the famous question, which was asked, why is it Breshit Barai Elohim as opposed to Elohim Barai Breshit? In that context, the question even strengthened. What were the people like there, Rabbi Berman, in Egypt? I mean, people are always scared to go to Egypt because the people, you know, there's this very, okay. very cold peace or whatever you want yeah. to call it. Not that pleasant. It's a heck of a lot warmer than you think. Um, I have now been three times in the past year and a half, and I've never had any issue. And I, I, I've gone jogging by myself on my own in Luxor and Aswan and have had Egyptians cheer me on. We went walking, all of us, a large group of more than 30 people, uh, many of us with just you know our kipot in the open, walking through the main shuk in Cairo and no problem. In fact, most places that you go, you have hawkers who run over to you and say, Shalom Racha, Shalom Racha. You know, they want to sell you stuff. I had been in a hotel in Luxor on one trip, and then I was back there again a month later with another group. And I went to the lobby bar, and a waiter came over to me that I, that I remembered I had spoken to the first time I had been. And he said to me, welcome back. It's so nice to see you. He said to me, would you like your cappuccino the way that you ordered it a month ago? I was like, whoa, <laughs> unbelievable. At the end, I wanted to leave him a tip. I didn't have any Egyptian pounds on me. I said, can I add the tip to the credit card? He said to me, we're not really set up for that. But, but just seeing you is enough of a tip for me. You know, I don't remember an Israeli waiter ever saying that to me. Yeah, I've you never know? heard that either in my <laughs> sojourns throughout Israeli restaurants. Yeah, yeah. Every, every, every tour bus in Egypt has uh, armed guards on it. Egyptian government provides because we're very important to them. Our lives, all of us, very important, not because they love Jews or love uh, Dutch or anything, but because if God forbid anything happened to any tourist, it would shut down the economy for two years. So uh, I recognized on on one of the buses, a fellow who I had met a year ago when I went uh, the first time. And, uh, you know, these guys don't know any English. So I, I said to the Egyptian tour guide we were with, please tell this gentleman that I recall him being the guard on our bus a year ago, and that I'm very pleased to see him again. So he passed that on in Arabic. A few minutes later, the guy hands me his cell phone, and he pushes a button. And we started to have a dialogue through Google Translate. <laughs> and it goes on and on like this. And they are so incredibly respectful of Kashrus. I mean, the hotels that we're in. You know, where we had to go into the kitchens and, you know, tell these guys to do all sorts of things that they've never done before. But, you know, when you tell them, well, this is our halal, well, they get that. Oh, they get that real deep. And I think that, you know, it's, it's a different generation. You know, we're, 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 we're now writing the coattails of the Abraham Accords. And Egypt, Egypt is a big part of that. You know, I think that we are part of the axis of the, you know, modern sane countries in this region. Uh, and and uh, Al-Sisi is a big part of that. And I think that, you know, it's interesting when you, when you go to Egypt, mostly you see young people. I don't know what, what the lifespan is there, but it, mostly what you see is young people, which is to say people who don't remember, you know, Nasser, don't remember the Yom Kippur War. So I, I think that, you know, most of all, they, they want to have a good economy. And I, I see an opening, you know, for the first time now, ever since the signing of Camp David, we now have direct flights between Tel Aviv and Cairo on Egypt Air. They always had this kind of, I don't know, fly-by-night thing that they were operating because they were too embarrassed to send planes with the insignia of Egypt Air to, to, to Ben-Gurion Airport. No longer. They want to have Israeli business travelers flying through Cairo rather than through Addis Ababa. So I have no delusions. This isn't for a love of Zion. It's for a love of mammon. But that's okay, too.
you know, I can still remember Yom Kippur 1973, when the rabbi of our shul got up and he started saying, Israel has been attacked, we don't know by whom, and we don't know from, and feeling the shiver, and the, you know, the, 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 the shock in the entire shul. And I still have to pinch myself to realize that, you know, wow, things have really changed. And I think it's really important that we have an openness to this. You know, if we are, if we are uh, skeptical of them, they will be skeptical of us. And if we are receptive of them, they might be receptive of us as well. And that has been my, my resounding experience. And there was an experience of all from Jews. And there are, there are now many that have gone. Uh, this is a growing thing. I have not heard of a single event anywhere. I have no delusions. There are certain parts of Egypt you should not go to with a kippah. Just like there are certain parts of Jerusalem or New York or anywhere else. Um, but in the areas that tourists tend to go to, not only safe, but, but warm reception. In that case, Robin Berman, I'll ask you if people are interested in joining you on future trips. Do you have any others that are planned now? Yeah, Mir Tashem, uh, you know, the time to go to Egypt is in the winter. Uh, in the summer, it's really, <laughs> if you think Eilat is hot, you know, that's yeah. nothing compared to Luxor or Aswan. Yeah, so next February, Emir Tashem, uh, I have two trips that I'm planning with uh, with uh, Kesher tours or Shai Barilan tours. They're one and the same. The information for that will be up probably by June. But, you know, if you're already in touch with their office and say, you know, please send me info once, once it's available. And, uh, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll be doing it again. You know, I mean, it's a guess on uh, pandemics and uh, geopolitical developments. But uh, uh, so we're very thankful that, you know, we got to go now. And it'll be, it'll be a possibility for the future as well. Fantastic. Rabbi Berman, as a final question, do you have any particular message to leave us with before Pesach for believing Jews about understanding Sefer Shmot in the light of Egyptology, in the light of everything that you've said today? Oh, wow. Wow. A lot of what I, I have a book that, that's dedicated to the political theory of the Torah, that it takes away power from kings and gives power to the people. You do away with kingship, but kings were, you know, were the be all and end all in the ancient world. And this is such a, we all, we all hear it. We kind of know it's true, but having never lived under kings or potentates, you know, who had absolute power and had, you know, the entire economy at their disposal, uh, we don't really understand. And it's, it's until you see just how mighty and powerful these people were and what they built and, and the impression that it makes on the soul. I think that we, we sometimes are not able to fully appreciate what it means to be b'nei chorin, what it means to live in, in uh, liberal democracies where power is, is controlled, uh, where power is, is viewed with suspicion, rightfully so. And maybe it's really you know, only now in these, this last month and a half that we've seen what happens when people who have power, when it runs amok and you know, the war that's going on now, it's just incredible to us that this could be happening in our time. And so I, you know, I think that, that visiting Egypt and really understanding what, what, what kings and pharaohs were about, how mighty and how the how power and how, how obliterated the, the simple person was, uh, that's something that I'm, that I'm going to feel a little bit differently uh, uh, this year at Seder night. Okay, well, Rabbi Joshua Berman, as it was last time, this time was a really, really fascinating discussion, and I really appreciate your coming on the podcast once again. Thanks so much. Okay, thank, thank you, Scott, and to all of uh, our friends across all of Klai Yisrael, Echad Kasher V'Sameach. Echad Kasher V'Sameach. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. 
It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>